This podcast is brought to you by the African Narrative on Climate Change, a non-profit initiative aimed at providing actionable insights through research, relevant data, and impactful policy recommendations, all while elevating the voices of Africans in the climate change dialogue. I'm your host, Aaron John. In each episode, we explore how climate change is altering the lives, landscapes, and futures of millions across Africa through impactful stories in hopes to shift the narrative to transform the way we perceive, discuss, and tackle this global crisis. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the African Narrative on Climate Change podcast, where we uncover the stories and strategies shaping Africa's response to environmental challenges and the intricacies surrounding that. I'm Aaron John, your host uh, for today's enlightening conversation. In our last episode, we had a riveting discussion with uh, Mr. Danjima Wanico, the president of the Green Building Council of Nigeria, uh, focusing on green buildings and financing Africa's energy transition. From the episode, a pivotal question emerged from that dialogue where is the money uh, today we'll delve deeper into this crucial topic with a special guest dr abel Owutemi. dr abel is not just a finance expert but also a visionary founder of green age nigeria an organization at the forefront of providing sustainable student housing in africa so green age has set an ambitious goal to deliver 2,000 eco-friendly student bed spaces across the continent a remarkable endeavor if you ask me dr abel it's an absolute pleasure to have you with me today. Your work in green finance and sustainable housing, it's, it's both inspiring and essential for today's context. Uh, could you share with us a brief history of your journey and experiences that led you to establish the Green Age Nigeria? Thank you for the opportunity to engage with the African narrative on climate change. Um, of course, as you know, Dr. Abel Wotim, uh, being in financial services and then infrastructure, impact finance and um, climate advisory uh, and sustainability in the last 10 years or so, having to handle public-private partnership engagement between the private sector and government to drive impact-related projects, as well as dealing on structuring, development, and infrastructure-related transactions. Um, of course, my experience with major leading financial institutions that are present on the continent in Nigeria and other parts of the world, like uh, Access Bank, uh, FBN, uh, merchant bank, the, the merchant banking and investment banking subsidiary of uh, FBN, uh, First Bank Group, also had stints with Fidelity Bank and, and the likes. Um, I was the premier or uh, first corporate strategy manager for the World Bank-led housing intervention initiative uh, in Nigeria called the Nigeria Mortgage Refinance Company. Uh, part of the engagements for the Nigeria Mortgage Refinance Company was to, you know, expand and deepen the housing finance market in Nigeria, looking at home ownership, stimulating construction, driving the narrative 
as it were, instituting the development or adoption of markets through adoption of uniform housing underwriting standards and things like that. The work involved having to partner with different state governments, including the Kaduna State Government. I think that engagement led to the uh, Kaduna State Government creating the first mortgage foreclosure authority in Nigeria at the partnership and behest of the Nigeria Mortgage Refinance Company in partnership with the World Bank. And of course, that has seen a lot of DFI flows and um, private investment flows into Kaduna State with a, a structured approach to housing and infrastructure development. I mean, Kaduna State, Lagos State, um, I was also part of the first IFC World Bank green building development called Peridot Park by EcoStone International in Lagos. So all of these are the things that been involved in in the last um, decade and um, currently had moved on to getting my hands a bit more dirty in the space of uh, providing impact investment and development with regards to student housing that looks at the impact of a lack of availability of student housing on the environment, trying to provide student housing to curtail and address that impact from both a climate perspective, an environmental perspective, a social perspective uh, and a gender lens perspective. So far, uh, that's what I've been engaged in, trying to handle all of this on one hand as a founder and then uh, as well as um, someone with, uh, would I call it, um, some level of engagement in that space, trying to shape the narrative in terms of what we've seen on ground and what the expectations are with regards to uh, the demands on the financial side and then on you know on the social side trying to balance all of this together so that's been my journey in the last uh, decade or so Interesting. So what I can weave together now is that your experiences have been with financing, you know, restructuring the housing sector based on your work with NMRC and now on what you're doing. So I'll come back a bit to you being a founder and then we touch on your projects with the student housing. So tell me a bit about the work you've done with the Nigerian Mortgage Refinancing Company, particularly as it concerns urban centers, which are now, you know, rapidly expanding. And um, how do you see the work there or lack of affecting climate resilience, you know, particularly about the proliferation of slums and the need for more housing development, not just in Nigeria, but in Africa, because I know NMRC have some footage even in Kenya. So, um, you know, the, the World Bank Housing Finance Initiative that gave birth to the Nigeria Mortgage Refinance Company um, also has um, sister initiatives across Africa. You're, you're correct. Uh, places like Kenya, the Kenya Mortgage Refinance Company that just came on stream, uh, the Tanzania Mortgage Refinance Company. Uh, there is one in Egypt and Algeria, I believe. I'm more certain of Egypt uh, and the like. So, uh, and then there is also the um, CRRH, which is the mortgage refinance company that caters to the Francophone Africa uh, region as a block. Um, with regards to our work and then the proliferation, I mean, the, this is like um, one side of the coin or 
one side of the same coin. Uh, so the question most times when we're looking at housing and the challenges and the proliferation of slums and upgrade of slums, uh, you know, um, part of the impact that climate financing or climate change has had to make us do is to adjust our lens while at NMRC. So um, we basically look at them as unplanned settlements, not yeah. slums. Yeah. Uh, if you look at them at slums, then you begin to paint a narrative that influences government to take actions that are not beneficial to stakeholders. I see. Because uh, the whole idea when you talk about slums is you want to tear it down, basically. If you say it's an unplanned settlement, then you begin to adjust your lens and say, okay, so how do what we plan it? Of this? Yeah. Exactly. How do we replan this? How do we adjust this? How do we evaluate the impact and then try to see, you know, what's happening environmentally? And then um, how do we make this, you know, because either you like it or not, there is an economy going on. If you call it a slum or unplanned or whatever you call it, there is an economy existing, a shadow economy. That's right. Or uh, an informal economy. uh, That's right. That is being impacted by the you know, the activities of climate change. There is need for that economy to be served when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to safe housing, when it comes to, you know, acceptable housing and all of that. So what has affected us over the time is our outlook on engaging with governments to say, I mean, the option is not just, oh, building of new cities. How do you manage on planned settlements? How mm-hmm. do you cater to the people who live in these unplanned settlements. And a lot of times what we found as part of the narrative in chasing the development of housing is you have a service sector that supports the development sector. And when the development sector is doing what it's doing, it most times do not think about how to cater to the guys that provide the services to drive the development. So these guys end up going to live in unplanned worker farms or worker settlements, so to speak, you know, uh, camps, life camps, what, you know, the developers would call life camps. Yes. A lot of times these life camps end up becoming these unplanned settlements because that's where these workers come from. I'm talking about the bricklayers, the guys that sell food to the bricklayers, um, you know, the plasterers, the electricians and their subcontractors and their laborers and all of them. Once this development is done, there is a service need in the new development and the guys who provide the service need in the new development would reside somewhere around the unplanned settlement and they come from time to time. Talk about your cooks your cleaners, your what have you. So that settlement becomes a reality that serves the planned settlement. Yep. So uh, what the UN Habitat discovered and decided to start doing was um, all encouraging developers and housing finance entities like the Nigeria Mortgage Refinance Company to start doing was to start also promoting the idea of mixed-use developments where... Right. There is opportunity for people at the lowest part of the ladder to be able to be in, in housing and gravitate over time. Right. You know, um, to where they need to be. And the whole idea as well is, I mean, if you have a planned settlement and it's only um, low cost or low level housing and all of that you have in there, the tendency of the horizons of everybody in that environment staying at that level becomes very high. That is still exacerbating the growths of more unplanned settlements, the growth of disease infestation, um, lack of education, lack of growth. So driving housing proliferation with the idea of 
mixed-use developments and also trying to address these unplanned settlements and integrate them into society became a key part of what we were doing at NMRC. And what we did was create different levels of underwriting standards to address this, Mm -hmm. both from the climate perspective, the structural perspective, because we had the underwriting standard and we discovered the underwriting standard was quite um, straight jacketed. So if someone doesn't have a proper nine to five, it might be a bit of an issue. So we had to create underwriting standards for the informal sector. Um, We also had to create underwriting standards for the non-interest banking sector. We also had to create underwriting standards for people who were looking at the investment side of, you know, making an impact, changing these narratives and they live abroad and have a better uh, earning capacity. Um, So we created an underwriting standards for those in diaspora. So these were the, what would I call the driving forces what we saw and how that influenced what we did in the last six seven years as part of nmrc and as part of what i currently do fantastic so i like to think that i'm a futurist and i'm obsessed with cities how they are planned how they are managed and what have you just because i think these are the most efficient way to drive sustainability cities are one of the most efficient ways to drive sustainability and something you said around you know, the work you did in underwriting some of the situations you saw that were straightjacketed, you know, reminds me of why we started the African narrative on climate change. Because a lot of policies that we, you know, draft and try to implement don't understand the nuances of our situation in Africa, you know, and a lot of financing options completely obliterate a majority of our demography from accessing them. And I know that one of the things you did with in Kaduna and elsewhere was to ensure that the mortgage that NMRC wants to refinance targets not just the civil servants, not just those that have nine to five or in the formal sector, but also tries to incorporate those in the informal sector to ensure that they are beneficiaries. Can you spotlight on that a bit and share some insights? Thank you very much. You are making me to peel back onions, so to speak. Don't cry, don't (laughs) cry. (laughs) I must say, um, the environment basically would mold you into a futurist. The fact that you were in Kaduna and all of this was happening because for a while we were chasing how to cater to the value chain. We we actually basically use a value chain approach in our engagement way back then to be able to capture the value chain and implement our narratives at that time. You know, the initiative with the World Bank sat at the back, at the most back. Refinance was the last line on the ladder. Before refinance, you had things like, you know, land assembly, the construction, offtake arrangement, infrastructure assembly, and then, you know, the servicing and all of that, and all of that, and financing from the banks. And then before we even begin to talk about refinancing, so, but we needed to play with a very proactive approach in the sense that we've seen where the market is and where our position is. And mm-hmm. the game was not going to come all the way or the benefits was not going to trickle down until we stimulated the point of initiation. So and that was what was driving you know, what we did and then trying to underwrite what was happening. So we saw that um, 
of course, with market stats being armed by data, market stats, and a whole lot of things, um, we had evaluated the environment and yeah. saw that, okay, so there was a thriving informal economy, mm -hmm. there was a thriving um, formal economy, there was a thriving private economy, and yeah. then we needed to understand that, look, um, if you come into the market to finance and underwrite housing at this level, you would create or most likely exacerbate the situation where those with more money would accumulate the housing yes. and throw every other person who cannot afford into a rental cycle. Yes. That rental cycle would continue driving further what we were trying to change. And it, and this is where part of the things that informs the nuances on what creates damage when we talk about climate change and the impact on financing, so to speak. You know, so with trying to address the issue of financing and access to finance, you could tell that uh, a lot of barriers affect Africa. I mean, we're looking at, and Nigeria particularly, we're looking yes. at a $20, 23000000000 billion dollar, mm -hmm. um, economy when it comes to addressing the issues around climate change. And a good deal of that money is not just structured in the formal sector. There is a good deal of it in the informal sector. We, we've seen that with what happened with the growth of fintech. We've seen that with what happened with the growth of microfinance and all of that. So that informed our approach. And then we had to work with different financing entities from banks to mortgage banks to you know housing development entities who also had access to some level of uh, Financing. So what we did was to work with the government to bring some level of intervention to the table and we blended with that to create affordability. So assuming our funding was coming from the market at certain rates and then of course Kaduna State had funding that was budgetary. You know the private sector funding has a hurdle rate. We yes. need to perform, we need to drive with a profit. Public sector funding impact driven. It's not is exactly it's not hurdle driven. It is impact driven. That's how it's measured. So what that did at that time was for us to be able to test climate finance initiatives like blending blending finance so we were able to look at you know if we blend both interest rates and bring down the rates to a single digit and make it a whole lot affordable at that time and then cascade you know the funding access so someone in public sector could be funded at xyz rate somebody in the informal sector at this rate mm -hmm. and someone in the real formal sector at this rate so it created that cascaded entry point for different of these beneficiaries and at the same time using a blended financing approach a blended financing approach um, of course you know you have a, the blended finance initiative and we as an entity that was uh, more or less inspired by all of these things going on in the economy and backed by the world that. bank <laughs> and backed by the world, <laughs> and backed by the World Bank and the private sector. And the private you know, sector, uh, yeah. We had to balance both sides of the coin, and then you had the government also involved in what we were. So, what was um, the impact? So, how impactful was this? I can't really speak too much into that, but I do know that. Um, there was some level of uh, engagement with financial institutions. At the time I left NMRC, there was a whole lot of um, underwriting review going on, trying to see what parts of the city could be financed. It also allowed us to bring in one of our sister agencies 
through finances development so they could finance the development and bring the portfolios to the table. And, and which agency is this? And we could refinance them. I, I think this is the Family Homes Funds. Okay, the Family Homes uh, Funds. We had them involved and as well. And then, of course, um, working with the Cooperative Bank in Kaduna, working with the Federal Housing Authority and things like that. So I knew a lot of activities were going on yeah. uh, in partnership with the Kaduna Mortgage uh, Foreclosure Authority. But uh, at the time, I had left. I've not kept major data points on what has transpired so far, but I knew a lot of activities around the underwriting and development had kicked mm. off. Sorry, I would like to take you back a bit. Still talking about some of the complexities around our own situation, and we're talking about the housing sector. One of the issues I know, you know, for certain is that we have terrible land titling systems mm. across board. So when you look at unplanned settlement, the first issue that arises is how do we ascertain who owns what so that when mm. we rebuild and we regenerate, we can always give back to the bona fide occupier of this piece of property. And I know at the time that you were doing a bit of work trying to sample some innovative ways of digital titling. Is it mm. with House Africa? I can't remember. So can you remember some of that and maybe just us a bit about yeah. that? It's also part of the, you know, a narrative uh, around what's happening where climate, uh, the impact of the climate was concerned and how we were, you know, beginning to address this. So the question is, a lot of times with things like this is, again, back to how do you deal with unplanned settlement? How do you finance them? Yes. Um, what kind of title was available? And, you know, uh, we had engaged with Malaysian housing company called Chagamas. Okay. We had also engaged with the Housing Development Finance Corporation of India. We had also talked with um, the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, CMHC. We, we did a whole lot of benchmarking and peer-to-peer -peer engagements and conversations around how these things were handled. And we took a leaf from what was being done in India. Okay. Uh, India introduced technology into addressing housing finance penetration for unplanned settlements. Okay. Uh, the thing with these unplanned settlements was the fact that um, a lot of these people owned the lands. So the question was, did you want to dispossess them of their lands to create a planned settlement that they may not be able to afford? or do you Which would not be popular to, um, for, a, for a politician. Exactly, yeah. which, which would not be popular. Which would not be popular. Looking at You're creating more problems and the guys that you want to solve a problem mm -hmm. uh, things like that or do you um, try to adjust their mental state their attitudes and then also create wealth for them and that was what we saw what what happened with india and the use of technology and we had to begin to work around that as you know nigeria mortgage refinance company and then uh, you know looking at housing market data housing the creation of a portal to track housing across different sectors different areas and things like that and how do we address the issue of titling titling we had a land use act that is currently over 40 years and you know yes settled in the hands of governors and we had to start talking to governments on the state level at the municipal level and begin to get them to understand that look you need to regularize title across different areas um, the solution cannot just be bulldozing and clearing out of slums you need to be able to create value 
you know, deeping the pockets of these people. They are already adding to the economy. You need right. to legitimize right. their ability to contribute to the economy, right. um, both financially, which at the end of the day still helps you because once the man has a title, you can collect ground rent. Right. You can do a couple of other things, you know. So we started looking at this and then that was where the incubation of, um, you were quite correct, House Africa became a theme for us. We incubated House Africa for about uh, two, three years, uh, trying to shape their market strategy. I was responsible for working with them to shape their market strategy and advisory, and then trying to um, align the blockchain technology to addressing real estate as it were and what that did basically was to look at it um, with a sustainability mindset and then um, be able to map these lands some of these lands are traditional ancestral lands passed on from generation to generation uh, they have uh, documentation, informal title, uh, traditional title, uh, showing, oh, okay, so my local chief knows me, mm -hmm. uh, he knows my father, he knows my father before mm -hmm. my father, his father and my father were, you know, so on all of that, and he knows that this particular parcel of land and this area is where my family has always been, yep. so I'm doing business here, I'm doing stuff here, I live here. So what we were able to do was to try and, you know, transition such kinds of land using technology by um, tagging those lands, geotagging, and then creating tokens and giving them something like an electronic title that allows them to be able to trace that land on an individual level. On a developer level, he may want to come into a community and do a development and yep. he's having to struggle with, you know, when do I get the land processed? How will the land come out and all of that? So he does his survey. Um, House Africa can then take that whole survey, put it on blockchain, tag each and every parcel of that land, create a token with a digital ID and, you know, issue you a paper that lets you you know, this is my land. And even if you need to now talk with government and government says, I want to use this place, you have a basis for negotiation, for compensation, as opposed to, yeah, you know, so that land can be now valued because there is a documentation showing the extent of the land, what it covers in relation to lands around it and what the value should be so that was our work and what we did and you can see house africa has expanded it's been able to yep. attract investment from you know private equity investors seed investors to drive the narrative across uh, it's also operating in other countries in africa is already operating across the markets in nigeria it also you know makes it easy when you're talking about fractional titling because that was a problem with titling that we came across when we were trying to expand and deepen the markets how do you um, manage titling with a man who is living in a eight block apartment yes he just owns one piece just inside one the piece. eight block apartment yeah uh how does he take that apartment to the market unlock the equity and be able to do other things for himself or even get a mortgage and all of that so we were able to look at that from you know fractional titling uh, became easier you know um, the planning and all of that and how to be able to create you know documentation that deals with major issues like double allocation that was a big issue in the market and i think with the blockchain technology we 
are able to walk away with all of that because you can tell from double allocation that is is taking care of even from the developer perspective from the landowner perspective you can't just show up and say you have a title to that land when this man already has a geotagged electronic data showing he owns this place from way back you know uh, it, it makes it also easier to quickly resolve Land-related disputes, disputes yeah. where the yeah you know where the foreclosure authorities are concerned. You know, part of what we try to do was to create all of these linkages to make it easier for access, to make it easier when we are talking about um, access to finance, even from the climate perspective, resolving dispute issues and things like that. So, with an entity like House Africa and using the apparatus of distributed ledger technology to address titling problems. It makes it easier for you to go to the authority. The authority, like in Kaduna, was created with the capacity to address land titling issues and land ownership title and tussling, void of having to go tie yourself in the legal system for Uh the next 10 years. So these were the smart initiatives that came with partnering with the state government. So uh, what that does is also give investors confidence to be able to come, you know, into the state to know that even if I have an issue, it can be resolved through the mortgage and foreclosure authority window. Maximum within 90 days, I have my issues sorted out and I know where I am and I don't have a problem. So it boosted confidence for the sector. And, and this is, you know, using that value chain approach on how to deal with, you know, titling issues as at that time. You know, these were the things we did. Um, I think House Africa is also trying to replicate across markets, across Africa and then across Nigeria as well. Fantastic. Why I think housing is very, very crucial to our conversations around climate change and climate action, particularly on planned settlements in the city, you know, they can be hubs for disaster if it strikes, right? If you take a look at what happened in Libya in September, the flooding in Libya, you know, caused by Storm Daniel, Mm. why it was so bad was um, excavated by infrastructural failures, right? Yes. And where you have dams that are about 50 years old that have not been maintained. Mm. These disasters have ripple effect when it hits on planned settlements like, or you Mm. say not to call them slums, but on planned settlements like slums that we have that are now proliferating across cities in Africa. So when we talk about climate action and we don't see that slums are incubation for disaster waiting to happen, then our conversations are lopsided. And then, so how do you develop the slums now? You need climate financing, which is what we've been talking about, which is some of the work you've done in NMRC and elsewhere. So you spoke a bit about being a founder and your work around student housing. Can you share more some gist around that? Ah, long, long story. Ah, but it ties to what you're talking about. When climate disaster strikes, the brunt comes to places a whole lot more where you, you know, government hasn't planned for, there is no readiness or, you know, policy is kind of lacking, you know. So, I mean, that that happens basically when there is no balance between how government policy mm-hmm. works and then what public sentiments look like. That was why when we started off, I said um, our mindset with regards to how these things are dealt with had been shaped from saying these are slums to unplanned settlements, right? So if it's unplanned settlements, 
then it tells you, so there is a settlement. It's unplanned. I need to find a solution. If it's a slum, tendency is for government to ignore it. I mean, it's a slum. And they wait for disaster to strike as an opportunity to clear it out. But then again, lives have been damaged. That's true. It's going to impact the fabric of society. You've created this social change already that has happened. And there is going to be a fallback of social problem on account of social change that has occurred. So we've seen that government policies can provide the legal framework, incentives and resources for implementing change and also preparing when these things happen. Public sector sentiment, like I had said, can influence how we look at it. Like I've just said, if I'm looking at it as a slum and I'm a public sector person, what I'm thinking about is different. If I'm looking at it as a slum and I'm a developer, what I'm thinking about is different. That's true. This is as opposed to, if my sentiment is, this is an unplanned settlement. I want to understand the social norms. I want to understand the behavioral challenges that has exacerbated the growth of this unplanned narrative to continue and then begin to look at it to see how do I put in support measures to integrate this, to improve this, you know. Um, I'm moving from this to into what I currently do right now. So it's important to foster positive and proactive approach and perception to how public opinion looks at things like this. It's not just another political speak because, you know, when we look at it, there is another issue with climate change. It looks like this is the new political jingle in town. It's it's not. It's not. It's been happening for quite a bit. It's been happening for quite a bit. And we've just not been very, very proactive as to what the impact will be. I mean, you, you, you talked about what happened in Libya. This was further exacerbated by the fact that this country has gone through civil strife over the years. Yes. This civil strife had weakened both the infrastructure and the government's capacity to react. To respond and react. Or to even plan, exactly. Or to even plan. So when disaster struck, it was just much to a hayfield of dry straw. That was what we had, you know, just to use that analogy. That was why things spiraled over. And then Libya wasn't just the only place. We had something in Morocco. Yes, the earthquake in Morocco, yes. Yeah, the earthquake in Morocco. Similar circumstances, you know, rainfall increased beyond the regular. And of course, we know from climate change and what is happening that rainfall is increasing, uh, dryness having longer spells than usual rainfall. We're having more milliliters of water per cubic across cities, driving flooding. Now, it's not just the flooding. And we say, okay, if we did flooding, the flooding will, you know, recede. This flooding also has impact for weakened infrastructure. And that was what happened in Libya. The dams got ripped apart and this had, you know, Mm -hmm. effect on settlements. And this was because if we could, from a climate perspective, from where Africa was concerned, we are dealing with a youthful population. What are the sentiments that is driving unrest with our youthful population? Is the government aware from a climate perspective to write these sentiments and issues into their policies to take care of the resentment that is building, the dissatisfaction that is building, and not let it broom and you know bloom um, into something bigger and becomes an unrest that disturbs government, that impacts infrastructure, that damages the fabric of society. And then when climate change or incidences and disasters, which are natural, occur, so what is the way forward? Beyond, it goes beyond 
the issue. So you, you, you can see that it's like a domino effect if I've, been, if I've been ignoring the state of my population. Africa has a very youthful population. I mean, this is not something we can say too much about. Everybody in the world knows that, you know. Africa is over 1 point something, 1.2, 1.2 billion people. 70 to 80% of them are from the age of 20 something downwards. You can see that where the fabric and then the infrastructure that caters to these people over a period has not changed, has not been improved. Both policy, architecture and infrastructure, both physical architecture and infrastructure has not improved over the years. We are basically waiting for a challenge. And, you know, that, that's been what influenced why I kind of took it a step further and what I currently do. The Green Age Student Housing Program is an impact program that looks at how to address the impact of a lack of student housing on the mindset of people, uh, largely female uh, students who are at the tail end of the impact of climate action you know, on students in general, on the environment. Um, because the built environment contributes about 40% to you know global greenhouse growth. Yes. So the more housing you're putting on the table, the more you are heating up the environment. So it just says it is important that you have to make these housing sustainable and you know environmentally uh, responsible. And you know while doing that, you are also looking at how do we address what the lack of this housing is already creating in the environment. You know. And that was the angle and the mindset with which we, you know, branched off, off of my work from the World Bank sponsored program with NMRC to, you know, it's a branch of the timeline <laughs> to use to use my 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 cartoon and, and Marvel speak. <laughs> it was a branch of the timeline to try to look at solving a problem that was, you know, already existing and futuristic at the same time I needed to be addressed. And what we were looking at was what it's like if you put 500 individuals in a building, what the impact was right. on the environment and right. infrastructure with regards to providing water, with regards to uh, utilization of power, with regards to keeping the environment sane and maintaining you know, what was going on and taking on that challenge and then trying to replicate it with regards to putting a solution on the table. So um, we looked at it from an angle of being able to address that dissatisfaction because from our studies that informed the development of the initiative, we saw that, you know, um, a lot of women, young adults are not able to afford education because of the, the cost of housing. Oh, wow. Housing takes up about anywhere from 30 to 40 percent, depending on the city, of the cost of education and access to education for students. And making this affordable was key. And by so doing, you were creating access for education to students who needed access and things like that. And then again, looking at the impact of the environment, building this green and having it certified to the highest levels, uh, advanced level, it meant that uh, at any point in time, you were saving the environment of minimum 50-60% of uh, greenhouse gas emissions that would have been, you know, otherwise if you had built it traditionally. You are also saving on water utilization, which meant that uh, instead of this particular infrastructure, 
driving and soaking up, you know, the demand on the network. It takes just 50% of what it would require and then have a balance of 50% left for every other person on the power grid or the water grid to be able to have access to water and power. Then on the social side was also trying to let students understand through programs, through initiatives, through discussions, through engagement as a hub, because you had mentioned earlier, right? Yes. Uh, how do we turn? How do we turn these settlements into hubs? Yes. So for us, each student housing settlement within the campus is a hub for you to influence and then drive the sustainability uh, side to it. Sustainability in terms of you know um, how do I live sustainably? Mm-hmm. How do I mm-hmm. use infrastructure? How do I use resources? Mm-hmm. Understanding that I'm not the only one that needs this. How do I use it? How do I use it responsibly? Must I use more? than what I need. Um, you have students from our engagement across different campuses who are beginning to understand that, look, I can do well with just having jeans that if I wash, once they dry up, I can reuse them without having to iron, to iron them. them. Yeah, I can use t-shirts and clothes that are, you know, made. So I mean, essentially are you are changing cultures and exactly. changing narratives. Changing cultures, changing mindset from these Settlements. The opposite would have been allow these student housing settlements to degrade as they currently were and the lifestyle and the mentality continues or create green student settlements where you can impact lifestyles. Talking about the financing was one of the challenges we've had and what we've had to do was to innovate by bringing in technology, tokenizing these bed spaces, making okay. it easier to break down these investments, take it to the market, um, have five people invest in one bed space because it has been tokenized and things like that. Um, Be able to talk to investors and issue sustainable linked instruments, green bonds and things like that, you know, to address, you know, what we do. So, I mean, this has been our approach on how creating hubs, creating sustainability centers from using student housing. I mean, this can be done across different provisions and housing sectors. I mean, you've done it so it can be replicated. Yeah, yes, it can be replicated depending on, you know, where you find yourself. You can do this with young professional housing, you know, that are built within the city centers. So if you are going to deal with slums and take care of it and all that, and then make it affordable, you must come in with a impact on sustainability mindset. Uh, It's not enough that you're providing electricity. Yes. You must provide it in an affordable fashion. And then even when you are providing an affordable fashion, you must adjust just the mindset of the users of this to say yes it is coming at affordable doesn't mean you can abuse it yeah and you, you and you get carbon it. credit as well exactly you need to conserve that you know, you know. So that's another side of that that we've not looked at yet the carbon mm-hmm. credit side of the narrative is something that i mean maybe on future episodes you could look at but then, then again the opportunity for carbon credit stems on the fact that africa only contributes four percent of the total yes of the total greenhouse gas emissions and contributions to what is exacerbating climate change. So by default, Africa is 96% green. It is 96% green. 96%, yes. Yes. 96% green. So why is Africa 
I mean, this is the question. Why is Africa not the center of carbon credit trading right now? Why is Africa not, you know, receiving financing from carbon credit trading right now? You know, and, and all of that. I know there's the political and we, we, we will get into that in future times. But here are the things and I'm happy you raised that up. So what we are also doing is also creating the opportunities for us to say, oh, yeah, look, beyond being 96% green from default, we are also taking adaptive actions. We are also taking you know, other actions as well to keep us green and to keep pushing back on this 4% that everybody's talking about. So for that, if nothing, we should be receiving more than, give or take, 40, 45, maybe 60% of money set aside for climate financing. And that's not been the case. And um, I'm believing with the, the African narrative on climate change, um, I'm sure some of these are things that will be thrown up and be looked at. Um, um, Definitely. At the moment, only 25% of what has been EMR yes. flows to Africa. Um, and 75% is EMR for mitigation, meaning issues have already happened. And then we're looking at mitigating. Meanwhile, we could have a whole lot more coming and then it could be adoption and adaption, you know, with regards to what we are looking at right now when we're talking about student housing, uh, building green, changing mindsets, and, uh, you know, adapting the current structure and all of that. So these are ways to go of that huge market. I'm from the school of thought that um, while Africa is planning around mitigation and resilience, it should really dedicate a bulk of its resources to innovation because we must advance beyond mitigation and resilience and then begin to innovate on how do we want Africa to be in the next 50 years. I'll touch on that later. Uh, and I'll also touch on what you said around um, innovative financing, um, on how you tokenize the bird spaces. But I want to circle back to your conversation around student housing and how that's been, you know, about 30% of the total costs. And I never thought about this, right? Back when I was in school, I paid 25,000 naira for school fee. And I went to a state school. <laughs> I went to the Benue yeah. State University. 25,000 naira, I think at the time, I'm not so sure, but I think it's around 25,000 naira for the year, right? Mm. And I was living with my flatmates. I think mm. our total contribution around the time amounted to about 150,000 naira per year for where we're mm -hmm. living and staying. Where you lived, exactly. That is more than triple the amount of school fee I paid. Exactly. And my time in the university were such formative years for me that it has shaped a lot of things I do now. Exactly. So if you build an ecosystem where not just that student accommodation is affordable, but it's also green, and I live in a place where I begin to understand the concept of what a green building is, and not just green building in terms of um, use of clean energy, but also use of engineering and architecture and um energy consumption and efficiency to reduce my carbon footprint at the end of the day, then that means when I go around, when I go or think about my life or think about my house, housing situation when I leave school, I almost would want to replicate that same thing, you know? So which begs yeah. the question, right? Why aren't we utilizing our tertiary institutions as grounds for testing new innovative ideas like Mark Zuckerberg did with Facebook. And because this, we have young people that are willing to try out new things, right? You know, the bulk mm -hmm. of the users of blockchain mm -hmm. and cryptocurrency are in universities, you know, uh, exactly. spotty bets, exactly. what have you. So why are we not trying green solutions, green technologies? Or why aren't we even embedding our curriculum with topics that are 
around this conversation? Oh, wow. This is another book chapter you've just opened up. But (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you straight up, I like the fact that, you know, you can circle back and look at what would have been for you if you were exposed to what we were currently trying to do right now with Greenwich. Imagine what we would have been for you as an individual, as a person, and not just you. You were living with other people as well. So, you know, um, looking at that and our approach and, you know, what are the issues and things, we actually had even looked at this from a gender lens. Do you know 90% of the time a child has between the age of his formative years from zero to about nine, he spent most times with his mother, right? Except, of course, you know, if there are some challenges where the mother is not available, you know, things can happen. But typically, will be around the mother. A lot of times in Africa, that has been the norm. The woman is left with the child and the man, you know, goes to provide or, you know, goes AWOL, whatever situation um and from our gender equality strategy for looking at climate change and looking at the student environment as a viable ground to you know drive and expand things like this what motivated us was looking at this from also from a gender and social inclusion point of view which is something you've just tapped on be looking at your experience so to speak you know you know a woman that has gone through this in an environment where she's been trained and, and she understands what the impact of the environment could be on her when a disaster happens and how she can mitigate it and what her choices should be would begin to understand and begin to influence the choice of the kind of home that she and most likely her husband would have to select, build, or even buy. Right. And how all of that is going to feed into how she inundates her child right. with the culture, with regards to resilience, with regards to economics, with regards to finance, with regards to choices, with regards to the utilization of resources. And for us, we figured this is critical and it has to come front and center. So if you're building a thousand units of bed spaces, you must by default give room for a minimum of 50% for people who are impacted more by the impact of climate change to right. be able to have access to you know so so just in line with what you were saying and you know part of why this has not circled through is back to what we had said earlier when we were talking about government policy and public sentiment the barometer on government policy and sentiment is not high enough to understand how much a festering ground for innovation and growth our youthful generation could be um because if policy begins to look at it. I think maybe with what this new administration is trying to do with um, the current minister of digital economy, yeah. uh, trying to create hubs, you know, but again, he's looking at it from a very, very microscopic level. There are environments like what you've said, universities are by default innovation centers, whether by definition or by you know, default, by default, it's an innovation center. Most of the ideas that come to drive society today are played around in the dorm rooms or the student hostel apartments of uh, students. Yeah. 
and uh, because they can't be brought into mainstream curriculum these guys stay up at night tinker with these ideas when they have the time and they leave their educational strongholds they go into the economy and try to replicate and then get the economy to piggyback on their ideas and make it commercially viable and then they become things that we know today everything from facebook Everything that has disrupted from the PayPal mafia and all of that, everything that has disrupted the world and shaped the fourth industrial revolution as we are seeing it today, had their roots in the dorm rooms, Mm -hmm. in the university communities and places where young people live their lives on a daily basis. Fantastic. So The inability of God's policy and public sentiment to begin to see this is what has not kind of made us begin to adapt and begin to look at this. But I believe that is what's uh, part of what uh, uh, the tank, the think tank <laughs> uh, on the African narrative is also bringing to the table. But that is what we've seen. That is what we've seen, basically. Wow. Uh, why, this is not, why this is not happening. Because this is also influencing the policy with which universities are managed. It is also influencing the policy with which and the sentiment with which, you know, people look at university environments. They don't, a lot of in Africa and from our perspective and our engagement, university environments have been looked at for a very long time by both parents and guardians and government as cost centers, not as innovation and investment centers. That's true. That is the reason. That is the reason why having to bring things like you know innovation sustainability innovation on the back of sustainability to drive change and improve things for us in africa has been a bit on the back foot uh there are bits of these initiatives springing here and there to be fair but not at the spate and at the speed and at the requirements for a very young population like africa uh, it's not going at this at the pace that it should be this has been fantastic and illuminating because as it stands, Africa requires $2.3 trillion between now and 2030 to implement its yeah. national um, determined contributions. Yes. Nigeria requires at least, um, I think, about $17 you know, billion, which is crazy to think about. If you look at just the finances, this is the biggest risk to us implementing some of our you know, pledges and what yeah. we want to do. Yeah. And the money coming in, for example, the money we've received in Nigeria between 2019 and 2020 in terms of clean energy is around 600 million dollars thereabout <laughs> as opposed to what we actually require so the conversation is plenty Opo, like mm. the conversation is plenty mm. right it's particularly you know looking at how climate change is being looked at from various lenses i'm sure there is a spiritual angle to it when you're looking at africa and what people think there is a political angle to it there is the angle to the me and you who are on the streets there's the angle to you know the guy who is being impacted who doesn't think government cares who doesn't think you know so there are various angles you know to it and um you know, part of the money that has to come in is looking at also Africa's development, basically. And a major issue has always been, so the rest of the world has developed using traditional fossil fuels, yes. including even Asia has developed using fossil fuels. Yes. And now everybody, everybody's saying, oh, Africa, you cannot, you have to go for alternative you energy. You have to find cleaner energy, issue, yes. Yes, but the issue with adaptation here is, most of the energy available 
where clean energy and so-called all these other energies are concerned is um, these energies have not achieved they are still suffering with constraint optimization so the level of force the level of depth and dynamism that we require to drive industrial growth is not deep enough when we're talking about alternative energies. The mm -hmm. circles, the depth is not deep enough to drive industry. So the cleanest form of energy that can do that is nuclear energy. The whole world does not want nuclear energy in the hands of Africa, you know. But again, this is the conversation. If the whole world is saying, oh, Africa, you know, you can't just join in on the bandwagon because you're our last hope. You go that direction, the whole world is going to turn red and, you know, the whole environment is going to be damaged. And if that is the case, alternatively, the cash flows should be coming down towards Africa. It really the should be. Investment centers should be coming down towards Africa. We should be determining and trading carbon credits to ensure the rest of the world is able to... Shouldn't Africa be dictating these things instead? Exactly. Exactly. Even if we are not going to detect it 100%, we should be in the conversation. We should be part of the informing the equation to say, look, I mean, so this is part of the nuances and short of not sparking a political debate, it is part of the narrative that has to come to the table to say, look, you can't, like what we've done in the past, you can't mine gold from Africa and then set up a prize in Switzerland and say, this is the this price, is the of, price gold. of gold. So you, cannot, you cannot keep Africa contributing 96% to keeping the global economy stable by being 96% green and then telling us, well, you know, your carbon credits, you know, this is how we would determine it or not determine it. So we need to be in the room. We need to be in the, the forecenter of what you know the financing would be and part of those challenges that i think we would discuss at a later time is how the financing regiment still uses traditional underwriting standards to want to look at climate initiatives and how so to finance them. even if i'm developing something green you're still going to use the typical traditional financing model that would make me unable to qualify for financing. Yeah. Uh, you need to also understand here that by doing this initiative, being profitable, doing all the things and getting them certified and all of that, there must be room for you to be able to manage because it's happening. I'm not saying this because I'm pulling it out of my hat. It's happening in Romania. It's happening in Colombia. You can get a mortgage, green mortgage loan in Romania, in Colombia, and it is not priced the same way you would price a typical mortgage loan. So you are more affordable because the financial system understands that you are contributing to balance. You are reducing my risk as a financial services company. Lending to you is reducing my risk because you've mitigated the major part of the risk that comes from climate change. That's true. So, yeah. So so these are the things. I mean, we would look, have to look at it a lot more, like you said, at another time. So I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Thank you so much. And um, I'm available. Another interesting conversation, if I do say so myself. Uh, thank you, Dr. Abel, for giving me your time. So as we draw the curtain on today's enlightening episode, 
Um, I would like to cue in the term of the day, which I mentioned in person in the course of our conversation. And the term of the day is nationally determined contributions. Well, the NDCs are a core component of the Paris Agreement adopted under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, UNFCCC, in 2015. They represent the efforts by each country to reduce national emissions and adapt to the impact of climate change. Our NDCs are intended to be ambitious and reflecting each country country's highest possible contributions uh, and they are to be updated every five years with increased targets. Uh, as I'm a Nigerian, I know that the Nigerian government just updated its own target with an NDC of about $17.7 billion uh, as annual contributions for the next um, 30 years to meet its um, net zero targets. So why is this relevant, right? In the African context, NDCs are particularly crucial as they outline each nation's commitment to managing and mitigating the effects of climate change, uh, which has disproportionate impact on the continent. So these contributions often include specific targets for reducing greenhouse gas emissions and detailed plans for adapting to climate impact like drought, flooding and um, other extreme weather events as we've seen in Libya and Morocco in 2023. Um, uh, once again, thank you for listening to the episode. Uh, a big shout out to Opus International who are the uh, custodian of our intro music uh, to my sound engineer Moses Giwa to my program manager Praise Agbe to my media graphic guy Moses Are and to all of you fantastic listeners don't forget to follow us on socials if you have some questions for us send us an email on tank at info.org check out our website and we'll be happy to connect with you I'll see you in the next episode bye